before I jump into this next part, I want you guys to hear me on something. I have wonderful parents. My parents are really, they're great, and they listen to my sermons. So I, let me say, my mother and father, you are amazing. They love me dearly, and they tried their best to give me a great childhood. And they truly succeeded in that. Except there was one thing that I realized as I got older that may have been a little bit off about my childhood. See, when I got to college, I started talking to my friend, or to talking to new friends, talking about their childhood, getting to know each other. And a question you might ask is like, what was your favorite movie growing up? And so the people around me would say things like Spy Kids or Ice Age or Kung Fu Panda, Holes. My wife, Taylor, her favorite movie growing up was Finding Nemo. And I had a life-changing realization as they answered this question. See, the movies that I watched growing up were very different than the people around me. Because my answer to this question was not a kid's movie, but rather Billy Madison, the inappropriate Adam Sandler movie that's very naughty. And then it all started to click. While I was growing up and watching Tropic Thunder, other children were watching Ratatouille. See, I guess my favorite movie when I was 10 years old probably shouldn't have been Wedding Crashers. And, and looking back, I'm like, huh, I should not have watched those movies, should I have? But to me, it seemed normal. I thought all children watched raunchy movies for family movie night. I'm like, oh, they didn't cuss a whole lot? What kind of movie night is that? And I really didn't think there was anything wrong with it because the world around me said it's okay. It's just what my family did, so I thought it was pretty normal. And I feel for my parents. Hear me, I get where they're coming from. They're not going to like that I've shared this, but that's okay. My parents go to our church too. It makes it even great. But see, my parents had kids when they were really young, and they had five of them. So they didn't have a whole lot of time to like, go have a family movie night. But they probably had like a, a desire in their heart to watch like adult films. They didn't want to just watch like Up. They wanted to watch, actually Up's a good movie. They didn't just want to watch like normal kids movies. And so in their head, they probably told themselves, you know, this isn't a huge deal. I really want to see this movie, so let's go for it. And they played on this disordered desire to watch something like Anchorman. And their only option was family movie night because they didn't get any other movie nights. So it's either we watch Anchorman or the five kids or we don't watch it. And so watching those kind of movies became normal to me. And since it became normal to me, I didn't think anything of it. My world said it was okay, so how could this be wrong? I think many of us have experienced this, probably not with the inappropriate movies, but maybe in different ways. Maybe it wasn't with your family, but with your friends. Maybe there was something that you did with your friends that was probably wrong, but when you were confronted with it, you just answered, well, everyone's doing it, so what's the big deal? Like our guidelines wasn't the rules that our parents set, but it was like, this is just what my friends are doing, so I'm going to go along with it. Because we constantly make choices based off of what the people around us are doing. Eventually, even if the choices are wrong or not what's best for our lives, it just becomes normal. See, everyone bleaches their hair when they're 10 years old, right? It's normal. Nope, just me? Okay, all right, I'll keep going. You guys did not have the same childhood I did, I'm learning. I had a blonde and pink mohawk, but don't look, don't look at my mom's Facebook. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> Anyways, or maybe we think in our society, see, everyone prioritizes money and isn't very generous, no one gives their money away. Everyone lives to fill their bank account. It's what society tells me I need to do. Or maybe thinking in high school, specifically males, but both genders really, they aren't very nice to each other. And it's so normal that we don't think anything of it. We think, oh, yes, friends are mean to each other and make fun of each other, right? But then we go to college and we realize, wow, we are all just a bunch of jerks. That was not fun or normal. Thank you for making fun of me constantly, high school friends. Or maybe we think, well, everyone goes out and parties. It's college. It's just normal. Everyone else cheated on that test, even though the professor asked us not to Google it, but everyone else did it, so it's fine. Everyone makes fun of that person or makes fun of each other just the way things are. 
one thing that got me was everyone sneaks candy into the movie theater, so it's fine. I did this for years. I'm very sinful and have fallen short of the glory of God. I've snuck so many milk duds into the water of the movie theater, it's not even funny. And then, this is not relevant, but I was going to a movie once, and I felt sinful about it, so I didn't sneak milk duds in, and then they were out of milk duds. I was so mad. I was like, Taylor, go steal milk duds or something. Anyways. But see, we live, in a, we live in a culture that has normalized so many things that I don't think we even think of anything of it. Sin, honestly, runs rampant in our culture, and we don't realize it because it's become a normal part of society. Tonight, we're going to finish our series entitled Lies at Large. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been examining the lies told to us and how they can distort our spiritual formation or just the process of us starting to look more like Jesus. We've been investigating the three enemies of the soul and how they each lie to us. The first one we talked about was the devil and how the devil deceives us through deceptive ideas, meaning the devil gets us to believe things that are not true and then he uses that to distort our reality into making it become true. Last week we talked about the second enemy of our soul, the flesh, and how the flesh deceives us through disordered desires or getting us to choose our strongest desires over our deepest desires. And tonight we will cover the final enemy of the soul, the world. Tonight we're going to be reading out of a letter written by the Apostle John, who was really close friends with Jesus. And this letter is written to a church, and in this church there had been some false teaching that had come up. And John is telling this church, no, you need to lean into Jesus and his teachings, specifically the basic teachings of, your, of salvation through repentance and just through the work of God. We'll be reading out of 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray together. Jesus, we love you so much. We thank you that we get to be in this place tonight, God, and we pray that you'll just speak through this, this word from, your, from the scriptures, God. We love you so much. Amen. Amen. All right. If you get one thing tonight, I hope that it is this. The world deceives us through normalizing sin. The world deceives us through normalizing sin. Ooh, that was scary. Anyways, we'll keep going. Before we dive into it, we're going to kind of go the same approach we've done the last couple weeks. So we'll start with this question of what is the world? Last week we talked about the flesh and how the flesh is just our animalistic desires for things such as sex and for food. The flesh is really the desires in our soul that if they become disordered, they become sinful. The world is what happens when a lot of people give into their flesh and those animalistic desires become normalized. The world is just the system of ideas, values, morals, and practices that are in our mainstream culture. The world is what happens when sin goes viral and becomes normal. The world is when right and wrong is not based off of an external authority such as God, but rather is defined by our own opinions and the opinions of people around us. For example, 70 years ago, it was frowned upon to have sex outside of marriage or wedlock. And to live with someone who isn't your spouse was just seen as wrong. Avoiding sexual promiscuity was so important that dorms would be like guys only and girls only in the dorm building. However, with the sexual revolution, sex outside of marriage has become normalized, and slowly our campus habits have started to change to where men and women started to be able to live in the same building, then in the same hall, and now men and women can live in the same room. Something that was once taboo just 70 years ago has now become normalized. An argument could be that, well, this is just because the world looks less like Jesus, so we just do less Christian things, and the world's not deceiving Jesus followers, but just everyone else. But rather, that's not true. Because it's happening to Christians as well. 
You see, the world is gaining a foothold in normalizing sin even amongst Jesus followers. Seventy years ago, Jesus followers would not have been nearly as likely to live with their spouse before marriage because their authority was the Bible, and the Bible clearly states sex is designed for marriage. However, authority has transferred from the Bible and God. We went from saying whatever God says I'm going to do to authority going to our own personal desires. So the world is saying it's okay for me to cohabitate. I want to cohabitate, and even though the authority, the Bible hasn't changed, the world has changed, so then our actions change, because we're deceived by the world into thinking something is okay when that external authority says it is not. The world is powerful, and the world deceives us through normalizing sin and making us think things are okay, even if they go against our authority, which hurts our spiritual formation. Why does this happen? This happens because we influence each other. No matter how individualized we want to be, God created us to live in community. And what is going on around you will impact you. None of us are strong enough to resist culture and just be our own self. That's just not the way we are created. Our behaviors and actions will spread to the people around us, and eventually this creates a culture. Everyone kind of gets sucked into this culture a little bit. It's like the state of Iowa. We have a culture. The campus at UNI has a culture. Chi Alpha has a culture. I'm going to go on a limb and say your small group even has a culture. Things that are commonplace, that are said, you do the same things. Because we are influenced by the people around us. This is just the result of living in proximity to other humans. This isn't like a God thing. This is just what naturally happens. And this is why I've caught myself saying, of course. Which I have no idea what it means. I don't know if it's from a movie or a show. I have no clue. But Pastor John, a good friend of mine, always says of Taurus. And so I started saying it. And I'm like, why? I don't know what it's from. It's not that funny. But I keep saying it. And John's really good at creating culture because he says the same four jokes constantly. <laughs> but I love him so much for it. It's good as small groups like, amen. <laughs> That's good. See, we become like the relationships we cultivate and the culture we belong to. We become like the relationships we cultivate in the culture we belong to. We aren't as much the captain of our own ship of our life as we like to think sometimes. And see, our culture and relationships forming us leads to widespread acceptance of ideas and behaviors. Something that is crucial to understand, though, is just because something has widespread acceptance, just because everyone says it's okay, does not mean it's actually right. The world deceives us through normalizing and making something that is not okay or godly appear godly because everyone else is doing it. Example of this, growing up, I was on the worship team, like the music, the band at my church. And a few people on the worship team, and if you love this show, don't get mad at me, just roll with me. A few people on the band would watch Game of Thrones. And I'm like, oh, that sounds interesting. So I started watching Game of Thrones. Please don't judge me. We all love God. Amen, amen. Eventually, most of the worship team started to watch Game of Thrones. And then we would talk about it on Sundays. If you don't know what that show is, it's, it's kind of like porn. It's, it's very naughty. It's probably worse than Billy Madison, but we'll keep going. And the worship team at my church that led people into the presence of God would openly talk about a pornographic show in between church services, and we thought nothing of it because our sin became normalized. Everyone's watching the show, so it can't be sinful, even though it was clearly sinful. I think sometimes we think if our Jesus-following people are doing it, it must be right, and that's not always the case. Let's make this even more real. The most prevalent example of this is in American history, this thing called slavery. Slavery is clearly wrong and evil. Everyone agrees with that. However, in this time period, everyone was doing it, so it became normalized. It became accepted as a necessary evil, a way of life. It's just the way things are. 
when in actuality it was barbaric and evil and has traumatized our country ever since. But because no one was willing to stand up and say, no, that's wrong, because we were willing just to go with the flow and just say, everyone else is doing it, so I'm going to keep doing it too. Slavery has greatly hurt people's lives, and it's continued on today. It became normalized because we have a sinful society. The reason this is so effective is most of the time, the sin or action that becomes normalized in our communities is usually playing off of our disordered desires. Let's talk about the past two weeks. Our disordered desires are things that we want that play into our flesh and become more important to us than God. However, when we give into the flesh, we don't actually like doing it alone because misery loves company. For example, on summer evenings, when I ask my wife, Taylor, if she wants to go to Four Queens for what's probably the fourth or fifth time that week, it's not because I care about her and want to like, make her happy and have a nice date night. I'll be honest. It's because I want a cookie dough snowstorm with chocolate ice cream, even though I've had three of them already that week. And see, I want someone to join me in my sin of eating way too much ice cream so I don't feel as bad about it. I have a disordered desire for ice cream, so I spread that to my network to make me feel better about my own issues. So the world hinders our formation of the image of God by normalizing sin that plays into our disordered desires because we don't want to do things alone. So let's look back to our text to answer this next question. What does the world tempt us with? So we're saying the world tempts us and tries to entice us to do these things, but what actually are they? And verse 16 answers this question. 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So the first thing the world tempts us with is the desires of the flesh. When John says, John again is the guy who wrote this, when he says the desires of the flesh, he was clearly referring to sexual temptation, but it includes other fleshly desires that we talked about last week, such as food, control, domination, etc. Really what this is, though, is the world tempts us with looking to the world for our happiness. We think if I just scratch that desire, then I'll be happy. The world deceives us into thinking if we give into our fleshly desires like everyone else is, then I'll be happy like them. We think if I just go to the hill and party like those other college students who seem to be having fun, then I'll be happy. But this is deception from the world at its finest because people don't enjoy sitting by themselves because they feel bad about it. They make it seem like a great time and they're having fun to draw people in with them. It's much easier to sin and give into our flesh with other people, so we drag people into our lives to make us feel better about ourselves, telling people that I'm happy and you'll be happy if you give into your flesh as well, when in reality, no one is deeply happy a morning after Sharkies. But we all believe this lie that everyone else is happy, and when they give into the flesh, we think they're happy, so we think we'll be happy, but then it doesn't work, and because the world is deceptive and we want this happiness that's promised to us, we all keep giving into the flesh and looking to worldly things for happiness, and none of us are finding happiness from it, because we're all deceived and thinking, well, I just got to keep trying it because it's working for them, when in actuality, it's not working for any of us. Next, the world tempts us with the desires of the eyes. Here, John is talking about things like greed, envy, jealousy, basically looking at the people around us and seeing what they have and wanting it. We tell ourselves, if I just get that object, if I have that girlfriend, if I get that grade, then I'll be happy. We are looking to the world for contentment and meaning instead of looking to Jesus to fulfill us. Now the world's deceiving us into thinking that you can find contentment from the things of this world. We assume that when people arrive or they succeed in life, when they meet their goals, that they probably become content. 
But time and time again, it's proven that this is incorrect. The people at the top of our society are not actually content. People like Robin Williams show us that the richest and most powerful and successful people usually are not content with their success. Jim Carrey put it best when he said, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. The world deceives us into trying to find our contentment through the world, through pursuing things like money, popularity, fame, because we believe the lie that people at the top are content, when in actuality, the people at the top will tell you that they are not content, and then neither are we, because we're in this endless pursuit of something that will never satisfy, so we're trying to find something that's just out of reach, and we never get there, so no one is content with what the world has to offer, because we have to look outside of the world to find true contentment. Because the world was not created, it's a creation, it was not created to provide us contentment, it was created to be a lamppost to God, who's the creator, who's the one who can provide us contentment. The only avenue to find true contentment and meaning in life is through God. Only God can bring this because he never deceives us. And he loves us not based on our performance, we don't have to earn his love. The things of this world like success, money, and fame, we have to keep performing to keep earning them. God doesn't make us do anything to earn it except say, okay, Jesus, I'm in. Because when our contentment's based off our own performance, we're not going to keep being content because sometime, I don't know about you guys, but at least me, I fail. And then when I fail, it's gone. But for God, when I fail, he just says, come closer. Only God is good enough to truly fulfill us. But the world tries to deceive us in thinking that it can fulfill us. The final way the world tempts us is through the pride of eyes. The world deceives us thinking that we can find our worth from the people around us. It's through the pride of thinking that we know best or that we are smarter than people around us. The world deceives us into rebellion. The world deceives us into thinking that only you or the societal norms of life can truly be the right way. We live in a society that the way you become worthy is by being different, by going against the grain, through individuality. See, a cardinal sin in our society is to be traditional, to accept a code of values. Submitting to something as old and traditional as the Bible is seen as primitive. The world deceives us into thinking that we must stand out, we must rebel, and that we cannot submit to any authority except our own, which plays into our pride of thinking that we are smarter than other people and that we know best. So how dare you, God, tell me how to live when I have the right to be a rebel and do as I please and I am my own authority? We think if we give into the teachings of Jesus, we are sacrificing our right to make our own choices for right and wrong. This plays into pride. Hear me. The church has done very, very many wrong things. The church is far from perfect, and Christian culture has some very messed up things about it. However, sometimes as Christians, we try so hard to stand out and not be like other Jesus followers that we begin to not act like Jesus simply to be different from other Christians. We will cuss and not talk in God-honoring ways and have a perverted mouth, which goes against the book of James that tells us to tame our tongue. But we avoid that scripture so we can be different than the normal Christian who only speaks in positive ways. And so we don't have to be tied down to that Christian culture. Or maybe we listen to dirty and, to be honest, quite sinful music because we can. And we don't want to be like other Christians who just listen to Chris Tomlin and don't have a correct grip on society. I get it. I don't want to be the goofy Christian either. I'm not a huge fan of Chris Tomlin. If you love him, I'm, he's great, but I just don't like listening to it. But that probably shouldn't push us to the other end of going from goofy Christian music to really dirty music that's not good for our souls. Maybe we should find this happy medium. Because remember two weeks ago, we talked about how our input is so important. For me, this temptation wasn't really with music, even though if I'm honest, I used to listen to a ton of Eminem because Christian rappers are really corny. So when I'd lift, I'd listen and be like, I'm not afraid, and I'd be pumping, and then I realized, oh, that was four F-bombs, let's just keep rolling. But for me, music wasn't the bigger tempter. For me, it was TV shows. 
see, I didn't just want to watch Pure Flicks or like that Courageous movie thing that came out where like the cop like threw the Bible at people. I don't know. I never saw it. So I thought, I don't want to watch those movies. So I'm okay with watching anything. And then as Taylor and I went through this process of spiritual formation, we realized, wow, a lot of the shows we watch are not very God-honoring. Just because the world says it's okay to watch certain TV shows, just because our Christian friends were watching them, did not mean it was okay. We must examine our decisions based not on the people around us, but what does Jesus have to say about this? See, the church, like we said, has made some mistakes, and there's things that aren't perfect about it. The church has treated some people who struggle with different sins in their lives in some very harsh and very wrong ways. So a lot of times our response to hateful Christianity is to go to the other end of the spectrum and to say that everything is actually okay. Because I don't want to be like the mean and hateful Christians who treat people who struggle with sin with no dignity and no love. I don't want to be like that, which I agree. I don't want to be like that either. But in our pursuit of righting their wrongs, we want to be so different that we stop standing for the truth of God's word. See, in our pursuit of being different because of our disordered desire of being rebellious and being unique, we get in the way of what should be our number one pursuit, which is in being pursuit of Jesus. We can never pursue difference or just righting other people's wrongs or being an individual above the pursuit of God. Being different is not wrong. That's not bad. Being the same as other people is not necessarily bad. You have to not question, am I being different or same? No, am I being like Jesus? That's all that matters is am I being like God? It doesn't matter what the people around me are doing. It's just about what God is doing. See, through the pride of our eyes, the world tempts us into trying to be rebellious, into thinking that we can be our own authority, that we have to be different just so that we can be better than the people around us, when in actuality, comparison is not with the heart of God. God says to show no partiality. So we find ourselves just constantly comparing to other people to make our decisions. That is an incorrect way to go about life. Instead of comparing right or wrong to other people, just say, what does the Bible say? What does God say about this? That's my pursuit. The fact of the matter is that the world, nor us, really know what's best in comparison to the God of the universe. When we start thinking that our ways are more loving or moral than the ways of the Bible and the ways of Jesus, then we know we've given in to the pride of our eyes and we've let the world deceive us. It is dangerous territory to think we are smarter than God. Believe me, I struggle with this as well, all the time. Giving into pride, giving into comparison, it's hard. It's a very dangerous and hard trap. So there's no judgment here if you've given into that in your life. But I think we just need to get a new lens through which we look through. Instead of comparing our actions based on the people around us, we really need to start saying, what does God have to say about this? But if we become a people who are bedrock and our foundation is the word of God and God and his authority instead of just society, we will turn this world upside down because this world is not looking for people to tell them that everything is okay. This world is looking for people who will stand for truth. Your generation is the number one generation. The thing that you care about is having purpose and changing the world. So how do we do that? We change the world by being, standing up for the truth. And as the world deceives us, one thing it's going to try to deceive us to do is to give our allegiance to the systems of the world over the way of Jesus. John Mark Comer, who wrote the book that this series is based off, puts it this way. A growing number of people are more loyal to their ideology or political party than they are to Jesus and his teachings. Jesus must be our primary allegiance. Not being a Democrat or Republican. I think as a Jesus follower, you can find truth in both parties, which makes it made everyone mad, so that's fun. Anyways, we'll keep going. See, our allegiance cannot be in being a student of you and I. 
Our allegiance can't be that I'm a future teacher. I'm a member of Chi Alpha. That can't be your primary allegiance, even though I love Chi Alpha. Your primary allegiance cannot be to anything except that I'm an apprentice to King Jesus. And everything else, everything in the world falls beneath that allegiance. If we pursue God first and the world second, then God will use you and will transform you into his image. Because the world is going to tempt us into giving our allegiance to it. Everything's going to try to tug at your soul for control when only Jesus Christ has earned the right to your soul. Only Jesus died on a cross to pay for your sins. Only Jesus will truly love you unconditionally. The things of this world, if you screw up, they're going to stop loving you in the same way. Only Jesus will love you no matter what you do. Your political party, if you change some ideology and you say, I don't actually agree with that, then they're going to throw you by the wayside because you're not all in. If you have a group of friends, if you stop doing the things they're doing and stop pursuing the world in the way they are, they might throw you by the wayside. Only Jesus will not throw you away. So I think we should be aligned with him because he's the one who loves us despite everything we do. The world tries to divide us, and it tries to pit us against each other, but Jesus is here to unite us around the flag of Christ. All this to say that the world is just when sinful ideas or values become normalized, and they take authority away from God, and they give it to culture and the people around us. The world deceives us through saying that this practice is normal, that everyone else is doing it, so it has to be okay, and this process blinds us to the truth. And through this process, the world colonizes us. See, the world assimilates us into its culture through making it seem normal. The question we must ask ourselves is, have I been been assimilated away from the culture of God and into the culture of the world? Comer puts it this way, the temptation for us in the West is less to atheism and more to a do-it-yourself faith. That's a mix of the way of Jesus, consumerism, secular sex ethics, and radical individualism. Meaning, we aren't trying to totally run from God. That's not our society. And the way I can tell you that is because this thing called social justice and diversity, those are actually kingdom of God principles. Jesus taught those first, and then the world is trying to take it. So those are good things. Social justice, caring for people who are less than, we believe in those things in Chi Alpha. But anyways, we'll keep going. What we try to do is we try to mix the best parts of Jesus with our own desires, and we try to create our own kind of kingdom and religion, but that's not the way of Jesus. It goes back to our original talk we had two weeks ago. The devil puts deceptive ideas into our heads that play into our disordered desires, the flesh, that become normalized in a sinful society. And the world becomes an echo chamber of sorts that tells, we keep telling each other what we want to hear, and so this can validate our lifestyle, saying that it's going to lead to the good life, when in actuality, that's simply not the case. In actuality, us in the world keep telling each other that whatever we want to do is okay, is playing into the lies of the devil that distort our reality, and through this, our world goes through our whole culture, which leads to a generation that has more mental illness than ever before, more unhappiness than ever before, and in our pursuit of the good life of just doing whatever we want, none of us have found it because the devil's lies have become normalized in our society and they do not work. The church of Jesus started with 12 people and it blossomed into the largest religion. Why do we think that is? Maybe because it worked. Maybe because the people who lived like Jesus, their lives actually became better. If they started living like Jesus and then their lives started to become worse and worse, they would stop doing it. Right? Because it wasn't because their parents made them do it, because their parents were dead before Jesus came. (laughs) See, now instead of following the roadmap to the good life that we have in the Bible and the way of Jesus, we start to follow the ways of the devil, and that just leads to despair and destruction. So this isn't here to guilt you and saying, stop doing the things of the world, or else you're going to be punished by God. God is not a fire and brimstone kind of God. No, it's saying, the ways of God work. So let's try them. 
It all goes back to what lens do we use to decide how to live life? Do we look through the lens of the world or what is society doing to decide what's best? Or we say, what would Jesus do? This can be taken even further. So what is our view of Jesus? Is our view of Jesus, the American Jesus, that says, no matter what, you'll be happy, and I promise you an easy life. The American Jesus that tells us that we can have both him and the things of the world. Or do we follow the rabbi from Nazareth who said, if you gain the whole world, you will lose your soul. Jesus who said that if you follow me, you're not going to have a place to lay your head. Jesus who says the way to follow me, the way to inherit eternal life is deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me daily. Because that's the Jesus of the Bible. I think the Jesus of our culture and the Jesus of the Bible have become different people. And I know that this doesn't sound loving. Like, oh, thank you, God. I can deny myself and pick up a cross and die. Thank you for that wonderful invitation. I'll pass. I get it. It doesn't sound loving. But in fact, it's actually true love. See, true love is not letting people just do whatever they want to make them happy in a moment without worrying about their long-term consequence. That's not true love. True love is not my wife, Taylor, saying, Derek, go ahead and buy whatever you want because it's going to make you happy in a moment and saying, you'll spend a bunch of money, that's okay. That's not true love because Taylor knows me and she knows my deepest desires. Talk about that last week, strongest versus deepest desires. Although there's things I want material-wise in the moment that seem fun, my deeper desire is to have margin in my life and security. I'm a worrier, so me not having like money and savings stresses me out. And Taylor knows that and she knows I care about you, Derek. I know you want that coffee bean grinder. I actually just bought one of those, so this is not a good example. But anyways, we'll keep going. I shouldn't have bought that, but it's really fun. Anyways, we'll keep going. She knows that if you buy that, you're going to be stressed in a couple weeks when we don't have as much margin or income. So she cares more about my future than my momentary feeling, and she tells me, Derek, that's probably not wise. Because she truly loves me. Doesn't just want me to be happy in a moment. Or maybe this looks a little bit different. Taylor knows that I value, I want to be healthy, I don't want to gain weight, I was severely overweight in high school, and I do not want to be like that again. So she doesn't tell me, just eat whatever you want. Instead, she cooks me grilled chicken when I ask for raisin canes. Because she loves me and knows that I will be happier in the long run with those decisions. And Jesus loves you so much. Jesus loves you so much that he wants to give you guardrails. Jesus knows that what you will become if you just do whatever you want or whatever the world says is okay is not who you actually want to be. Jesus cares way more about your soul than your temporal happiness. Jesus knows that if we pursue happiness in the ways that we think will make us happy, like sex, money, control, power, he knows those things don't lead to happiness. He knows that in our pursuit of the world, we will fall short in our pursuit of meaning and fulfillment. Jesus knows that we don't always have a clear view of what's best for our lives. Jesus knows that there's a difference between our strongest desires of what's best in the moment and our deepest desires of what's actually going to lead us to fulfillment. Jesus knows that, and he knows that he's better at driving the car of your life than you and I are. And Jesus loves us enough to tell us things that we might not want to hear in the moment through the scriptures that might make us cringe a little bit, he knows that, but he knows it's better for us in the long run. Jesus is in the long game. Jesus isn't just worried about your next six months. He's worried about your next 60 years. Jesus knows that we cannot have both the ways of the world and fulfillment through him. Timothy Keller puts it best when he says, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idolized version of your, or idealized version of yourself. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just not be hearing from God. Maybe the world has colonized your view of Jesus and shaped him to be who you want him to be, not who he actually is. Jesus and I argue a lot. So I, spend, I start my day praying and reading the scriptures, and about every day I get in there, I get my cup of coffee, and I wake up grumpy for some reasons. I'm like, God, this stinks. I read the scriptures, it says, like, die to self and be humble. I'm like, I don't want to be humble. And then I just slowly, over the next hour or two, Jesus just starts to soften my heart, 
like pats my head. I love you. Quit being an idiot. And it's good for me. I don't always agree with God, and I'm a pastor, so if I disagree with God, I'm going to go out on a limb and say you guys might too. So we have our final enemy, the world. Luckily, though, we don't have to give in to the world. We can resist it. So it leads to a question of how do we resist the world? The answer to this question is quite simple. We resist the world together. We cannot follow Jesus alone. We fight the world through community. We need each other if we want to discern Jesus' truth over the lies of the devil. If we want to help each other override the desires of the flesh, the lies of the devil, and if we want to be a counterculture to the world, we must do it together. This is the call of the church, not the church like a building you go to on Sunday mornings, but the church is the people of God. The call of the people of God is to be a counterculture. Another way to put this comes from my favorite pastor in the entire world from New York City. His name is John Tyson, and he says that we are called to be a beautiful resistance to the world. We must resist the pressures from culture to blend in and fit in. If we want to resist the world, we must accept that we will never fit in. We will never be cool. We will never be liked by the culture around us. Because following Jesus is not about blending in, but rather about being called out. The Greek word, which is the language in the New Testament for the word church, is ekklesia. That word means those who are called out. The church is not to be a community of comfort, but of calling. Comer says that the church must become a thick web of interdependent relationships between resilient disciples of Jesus, deeply loyal to the way. We are to be a beautiful resistance to the world. Not that we hate the world or we're against the world, but we are loyal to Jesus. We do this through three ways. First, we must be deeply tied to each other. We must rely on each other and spend extravagant time together. We live in a world that's all about independence, and you do you and I'll do me, but that is not the way of Jesus. The way of God, and we want to resist the world, is about having deep ties. This looks like being deeply committed to your small group, to actually doing life in your small group. Don't just show up on your Wednesday or Thursday night, have a quick discussion, and go home. No, spend your lives together. Be real with each other, and if you're not in a small group, get connected to a small group because it's life-changing. In my life, I'm deeply tied to a few men who have complete authority to call me out when I'm not being wise. One of them is my older brother, who's our pastor of our church, and he loves to do that for me. He loves to tell me that I'm not being wise, and I don't want to hear it ever. I'm hoping someday I'm going to be really humble, like, thank you for telling me that. So far, I just get mad at him, but we'll hopefully grow out of that someday. But we are committed to each other because we're deeply tied. Even when Daniel offends me or tells me something I don't want to hear, I don't just like run away from him and say we're done being brothers. I'm stuck with him. My mom would kill me if I told him I'm done with him, so that wouldn't be good. But when we're deeply tied, we're deeply committed to each other. We don't run from community when we hear something we don't agree or don't yeah, necessarily agree with. We invite challenge from our brothers and sisters. We live to this maxim that over my dead body will I let you do something stupid with your life because we care enough about each other's souls to say hard truths. So if you want to be deeply tied, we are deeply committed. Sometimes someone's going to call something out in your life and say that's not the way of Jesus, and they're going to say it horribly. And they're going to be mean, they're not going to be people smart at all, but we just have to say, I love you and I know you love me, so even though you just really ticked me off and you said that terribly, I'm going to keep fighting for you. And I'm going to be committed to you, even though I did not like the way you said that. I say stupid stuff all the time, so if you've done that, join the club, it's fun. It's not fun, then you have to have a lot of makeup conversations, but we'll keep going. So after we are deeply tied and committed to each other, number two is we are deeply holy. This means that we live differently from the world. 
that even if the world says something is okay, we don't automatically assume it is. It goes back to what our lens is. Our lens for our decision-making is not what is everyone around me doing, what's culture doing, but rather what would Jesus do. And this is going to cause us to engage with the things of life, such as social media, money, time, power, entertainment, the way we talk, sex, and dating differently. It means we will hold to the values and convictions in a world of compromise. We will care more about what God thinks about me than what others think about me. We will live out Acts 5.29 that says we must obey God rather than man. If we are deeply tied and then deeply holy, it means we are going to live to the ways of Jesus that are outlined in the scriptures. Finally, we must be deeply disciplined. Deeply disciplined. And this means we will have a sort of rule of life. Comer puts it this way. A rule of life is simply a schedule and set of practices and relational rhythms that organize our lives around Jesus' invitation to abide in the vine. It's how we live in alignment with our deepest desires for life with God and his kingdom. So basically, this just means we have some order in our life. See, when the world gets more and more chaotic, what the church, the people of God, tend to do is get more order to counteract that. In our Chi world, what this rule of life that a lot of us live by is doing some things like spending daily time with Jesus. We read the Bible, we pray, we sit in silence, we practice the spiritual disciplines. It's a high value in Chi Alpha. Another part of our rule of life is we go to small group and we're real with our small group. We are vulnerable with our small group. Another part is coming on Tuesday nights and worshiping together. We push each other to look more like Jesus. Those are some of the things we do around here. And so if you want to be deeply disciplined, start to adopt some of those practices. We must resist the world because the main idea tonight, again, is the world deceives us through normalizing sin. The world deceives us through normalizing sin. So this leads us to our final question as we've investigated the three enemies of the soul. The final question of our Lies at Large series is this. What happens if we win? What happens if we win? If we win, we will become a beautiful resistance against the lies of the enemy, the disordered desires of our flesh, and against the world. We will become what is called a remnant. A remnant is just a small remaining group of something. For our context, it's a group that stands for Jesus in a world that stands for everything else. It's a group that remains hopeful in a world of despair. Becoming a remnant, a little pocket of hope, truth, and love, is how we will see our campus come to know Jesus. If we fight against the world in our own hearts, we can fight for the people of the world in their hearts. Again, when we say we must resist the world, that does not mean we resist the people of the world. We love the people of the world. We love the people around us. We don't fight them. No, instead we fight for a beautiful future. We don't reach our campus for Jesus by being hateful to the world around us. We also, though, don't reach our campus for Jesus by blending in with the world around us. See, if we're hateful, we will push them away by being jerks, and we don't want to do that. But if we just blend in and live the exact same lies as everyone else around us, why would they want to start following Jesus? Because there's nothing different about us. When people look at our lives, they have to see something different, or else why would they change their actions? Because the call to follow Jesus isn't always the most fun thing in the world. So if they say, wow, you, are, have, you go to church and you're more disciplined and your life's the same as mine, yay, why would I sign up for that? No, we must be different than the world around us. We must live lives that are so different from the world, that are so full of joy that are full of happiness, full of love and purpose and purity. A life that even when our world is sinking, we still have hope. My prayer for Chi Alpha is that when your life doesn't go the way you want it to, which is going to happen, that's the way of the world. When your life isn't going the way you want it to, you're going to choose joy and say, I've still got hope because I've got a God who won. 
And if we do that, I, I promise you that if you are in a class and you all take this test and you all fail and everyone's a grump and angry, but you have a smile on your face, people are going to be annoyed at you, but they're going to be really, really curious about what's different about you. That if you live in a world, we live in a world that is surrounded by negativity, by despair. And if you are a shining light, just imagine a completely dark room and there's one flickering light. What's your attention going to be drawn to when that light flickers on? The light. That little light is you. Is that in a world of darkness, in a world of despair, we must stand for the light of God and stand for truth and say, I'm going to have hope in a hopeless situation because my God is good. If we have nothing new to offer people, why would they bother living for Jesus? Jesus says in John 17, 18, that as you sent me into the world, Jesus is saying, God, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them as an us into the world. We are sent to our world to be a remnant, to fight for the people around us, to sacrifice for people and love them. We are sent to fulfill the call of Matthew 28, 19, that says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded, and behold, I will be with you always to the ends of the earth. That is our call, to be a remnant of people who are fighting for discipleship. That's how we fight for the world, is by making disciples who make disciples who make disciples who live a life of real devotion, real community, and real responsibility. And the main way we do this in Chi Alpha World is through our small groups and our small group leaders. So this goes back to the very first thing I said tonight. If you're here and you've been following Jesus and you, you feel this call to make disciples, I highly encourage you to do our LTC class. This is not a plug for that. I don't really believe in doing things like that, but I believe in calling out the potential in your lives. And I believe that you are world changers. And I believe that this group of people has the potential to reach the entire 10,000 students of you and I who don't know Jesus. I firmly believe that. And if you don't believe me, ask our staff team, ask my wife. I have hope, probably more than I should sometimes. I believe in you. But I also believe that we are under-equipped. I believe that at least on my own, by myself, I can't reach these 10,000 people. That's not going to happen. I'm not a good enough preacher. But I do believe that if we come together and we say we will be a remnant, we will be a beautiful resistance, and then we choose to be equipped through learning from people who have followed Jesus just a little bit longer than us, it'll help us look more like Jesus, we'll help other people look more like Jesus, and we'll see this campus turned upside down. So if you have 1% desire to fight for this world, to help people look like God, to choose to sacrifice your time in college for other people. You get four years to do this. That's it. Maybe five or six, depending on your study habits, but hopefully no more than eight. You get a few years to do this. We get a few years to be the remnant on this campus. If you feel a tug, I highly challenge you to sign up for LTC and see what God has. You're not committing to anything. It's just you saying, all right, God, I'll give you a shot. I'll see what happens. Who knows what God wants to do through you? Who knows? Maybe you're a freshman and you think you're not called or maybe you don't think you're equipped to be a leader of other people. You haven't followed Jesus long enough. That might be correct, but I'm going to challenge you to do it anyways because none of us are equipped. I'm the youngest person who has my job, I think, in the entire country. I'm certainly not equipped for it, but God moves because it's not about us being equipped or having the talent. It's about us being like Isaiah who says, here I am, Lord, send me. If that's you, I challenge you to see what God has. Because I believe what God has done in your life, he wants to do through you. 
And I believe that that freshman or sophomore or junior or senior or fifth year who doesn't think they have enough time, I believe that if you're willing to commit to the cause of discipleship, to helping fight for this world, I believe someday there'll be someone in heaven who's only there because you are willing to say yes. And to me, that's why I live. Is so when I die, my line of people following Jesus doesn't stop with me. But I can look and say, holy cow, Jesus, thank you for using me. Possibly you're here. And this idea of being a remnant sounds intriguing, but maybe you're thinking, well, the ways of the world have been kind of fun for me, so why would I try this other way? What's so much better about this Jesus? See, this Jesus sees our world, and he sees the flaws. He sees all the mistakes we make. But the beauty is, is this Jesus didn't leave us that way. He didn't leave our world in filth as we've screwed up time and time again. He does not leave us that way, but instead, he creates a way out. And he does this through dying on a cross. See, there's a God, and he loves you so much that he paid the ultimate price and gave his whole life simply for you. He was the beautiful resistance against his world, so we can be the beautiful resistance to our world. Jesus wants you just to accept that payment tonight. We have a few options. We can either give into the world and its lies and blend into society, or it can be a beautiful resistance. We can resist the world through changing our lens to what does culture say is okay to what does God say is okay. And then after we become a beautiful resistance, we have one more option, or two options, one more decision to make. We can either choose to close off and hide ourselves out from the world and say, okay, we've resisted the world. We're not like the sinful people around me. I'm going to wait out this storm called culture. Or we can fight for the people around us. We can be a light to the people on this campus through living like Jesus outwardly, through making disciples, through sacrificing our time in college for this world. This little world of University of Northern Iowa has 10,000 students who do not know the name of Jesus. This little world called the University of Northern Iowa has 10,000 people who do not have hope and are swimming in a society that has normalized sin. This little world needs a remnant, needs one group to stand out and stand up. This little world needs you to count the cost and say, I will fight against the world in my heart so I can fight for the world in the hearts of students around me. If you'd all stand with me. If you're in this place tonight, and if you're honest, you've not been following Jesus. Maybe you once did and you stopped, or maybe you never have, and you want to change that and you say, okay, I want to... I want that hope that they talk about. I want this hope of Jesus. And you want to give your life to Jesus and have your sins washed clean, white as snow. If you would all close your eyes, bow your heads. If that's you and you want to give your life to Jesus, on the count of three, I'm going to challenge you to raise your hand, not as a sign to me, but as just an outward sign to God of what's going on in your heart. So that's you. Raise your hand on the count of three. One, two, three. Thank you. Thank you. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, you're so good, God. Jesus, thank you for seeing us in our sin. Thank you for seeing us in our flesh and saying you love us enough to die for us, God. In your name, amen. Amen. All right, we have one more way to respond tonight. If you're in this room and you want to commit to A, resisting the world, but B, fighting for the world, it's making your life about more than just you. I'm going to have a different challenge than usual. I'm going to challenge you to come and stand up here. We're going to sing a song together. I'm going to challenge you to come up to the altar and worship Jesus and make a proclamation that I am standing for something besides myself. 
I will resist the world in my heart so I can fight for the world in the hearts of students around us. So I'm going to pray. And if that's you and you want to make that commitment, the altar is open. Let me pray. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, I thank you for this group of students. I thank you that you've called us to this campus, God. I thank you that you've created an avenue for us to resist the world and to fight for this world. In your name, amen. Amen. The front is open.